was reminded by one of you that this evening begins the Jewish Sabbath Shabbat. It's a day of rest and contemplation and really like a miniature retreat. So I wish for you all that, and all of us, that we might allow certain forces in the mind to come to rest and relax a little more this evening and tomorrow. So this talk is a little on the theme that we discussed in the questions and comment period this afternoon of patterns of difficulty in the mind, or known as the five hindrances. The Buddha described them, and it's very nice, I think, that there are only five. Um, when the <laughs> Although they all have lots of interesting permutations. So the feeling of, when we have the experience of feeling quite enveloped in darkness or confusion or pain or sleepiness or restlessness, kind of overtaken and taken to a place that we don't like to be, the unhappy spot. But there are, good news is there are ways of working with this and of being through them that are quite skillful and can make them very interesting. In the spirit of this uh, Jewish miniature holiday, I can quote from the Zen Buddha to start a little humor in the beginning. Wherever you go, there you are. Your luggage, that's another story. (laughs) Your hindrances are another story. (laughs) The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single oi. (laughs) And lastly, as the Maybe in the spirit of this talk, accept misfortune as a blessing. Do not wish for perfect health or a life without problems. What would you have to talk about? (laughs) Now, a sudden channel change and swoop into a more serious tone, uh, which was the beginning of this talk as I conceived it uh, a couple of days ago. Recently, I saw Werner Herzog's newest movie, Into the Abyss. And some of you may have heard of it or him. He's a German film director. And his films are very poetic and almost surreal in how real they are. There's a sort of sense of discovering something mysterious in life. This Into the Abyss uh, was about the execution of a young man, Matthew Perry, who was involved in this sort of really ghastly crime where three people ended up getting killed because some people wanted to, some young men wanted their red car. Just something so unbelievably asinine, it seems. And what I want to talk about, um, the movie was a wonderful uh, exposition of the first precept against killing. It really starts off saying, you know, what is the reason to kill uh, someone, even if they're a kind of a terrible person? But toward the end of the film, the very, very moving part, there was a man named Richard Allen who had been an executioner in Texas for a number of years. And I think he said that, so the camera stayed with him. There was about a half hour almost of listening to him talk. 
He said that at some point he uh, counted he'd killed at least 120 people, sometimes two a week. He talked about getting people ready and lying them on the bed and all these very concrete details. But then in uh, 1998, one of the prisoners thanked him and kind of blessed him from her heart. Her name was Carla Faye Tucker. And she had had a spiritual conversion in prison. And she was thanking everyone and being grateful as kind of part of her practice. And although Richard Allen, I believe, from what I remember of the film, he did uh, put her to death, that was the last person that he was able to do that to. So he resigned his job and gave up his pension. And in this interview, he started talking about life, the value of life, and he was calling it live your dash. I don't know if you've heard this, but talking about how between the date of birth and the date of death, on if we end up with a tombstone, there'll be a little dash. And what do we do in there? And how important that is. And he just started to talk. He said, uh, he had a strong Texan accent that I won't try to imitate. He said, when you're up in your life in that way, you begin to notice what the birds are doing and the hummingbirds. Why are there so many? This is such a beautiful moment of his tenderness and appreciation uh, for life itself and for the manifestations of life and all the colors of life and also a sense of someone I felt who wasn't completely kind of absorbed in his own mind that, you know, when you're really living your life fully, you can see outside yourself the beauty of nature that we're all a part of. So that's this retreat and this talk to live our life in such a way that we're able to let our hearts be touched somehow by the awe of life that's almost beyond the capacity of our normal mind to comprehend. So our dash, our life, each of us has, we're lucky to have. Pema Chudran says, you have a certain life, and whatever life you have is your vehicle for waking up. If you're a mother raising your children, that's the vehicle for waking up. If you're an actress, that's the vehicle for waking up. If you're a retired person facing old age, if you're lonely and wish you had a mate, if you have a huge family around you and wish you had more time, whatever you have, that's it. So how are we living the life that we have? And I feel quite sure that each of us who's here is here because we're facing that question of how to live our dash. And in a sense, it's our day. This was our day um, that we had here together. How did we live our day here? What was that like? With as much fullness and heart as we could, sometimes getting kind of bent out of shape and coming back into shape, having tea, being distracted, doing our jobs, liking our job or not liking our job. Anyway, that's it. There it was. Now we're here. 
So this fulfillment that we're looking for in our life, what we feel as practitioners here, that there's a kind of unconditional coming into the present moment that any moment that we lose out on, no matter what it contains, is one sort of less moment of being awake and alive, no matter what the shape the moment seems to have. The Persian Sufi poet Rumi says, come down out of the tangle of fear thinking, flow down and down into always widening circles of being. So in a way, the sacred part of this tradition that we're teaching is that this moment is always perfect in a certain way. It's a perfect teacher for us. We're not waiting until we've lost weight or found a place of retirement security or be in the right job or saved enough money or met Mr. and Mrs. Wright or gotten permission from someone to really live our life. Nor are we waiting until we can really be with a hundred breaths in a row and never be distracted or, um, you know, attracted to another yogi or wish we could do something that we can't do here or whatever those things might be that go through all of us. So here we are feeling our breath. Feeling our breath is actually a strategy for coming out of the tangle of fear thinking and for contacting the reality of this living moment to really experience something. It's a strategy for kind of getting a little out of our heads. I did a yoga class recently where the teacher talked about really the energy and the attention of feeling yourself pull your breath all the way down into your belly and feeling that and sensing it as a kind of energy and saying this is bringing energy, life energy, moving it through the body with your attention, with your breathing. You might try to think of it that way, of attention as a kind of energy, a kind of life force awareness. I think that the living your dash uh, expression probably came from Eckhart Tolle. That was the first time I heard it in... um, the power of now, where he says, what will be left of all the fearing and wanting associated with your problematic life situation that every day takes up most of your attention? A dash, one or two inches long, between the date of birth and death on your tombstone. There's something also to be appreciated about the etherealness and the ephemeralness of all our fearing and wanting and fantasy fantasizing like crowds of butterflies in this room. It's not nothing. It's actually quite powerful in our experience to feel that. But in this practice, what we're trying to do is sort of wake up to be present with all the activities of life, including fantasizing and eating and walking and breathing and fretting and exercising and disagreeing with people, disagreeing with ourselves wishing the people that we love would take care of themselves better, gazing at the stars. Would this be at least part of the purpose of our life that we could accept to live as fully and as thoroughly and as beautifully as we can? We may want to leave the world a little bit better, to leave a guilt, some kind of gift from ourselves behind, yes. 
we may want to learn and you know, feel that we could afford to become more authentic or disentangle from certain patterns that we recognize, which is what I'm gonna move into in the rest of the talk. But sometimes I like to have that feeling of kind of rendering an account to myself of my own living, like what, how I did today, how I'm doing in this life that I have in the form of a woman, a meditation teacher, and leading a retreat, giving a talk, in the form of a wife and a writer and a friend and a sister and in relationship with the rest of the world. It feels good to kind of set it up that way and, you know, say, look into it, like, how am I living? And again, there are teachings here where we're speaking about tolerating so many difficult energies and forces inside ourselves. It doesn't mean that we agree to all the evil of the world, all the intolerance and the hatred at all. It doesn't mean that we also can't pursue pleasure and well-being or identify things that make us feel good. And My husband wanted me to say um, that that especially. He's a man who likes to go to Buddy's truck stop every Wednesday and eat breakfast with his friends and he likes that. He's been going to diners ever since he was a young boy and it's a place where he just feels really a lot of comfort and you know listening to all kinds of conversations and stuff and being part of things. It's you know that's great. It's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't mean that because we're here on retreat that the conditions of retreat are what we're going to try to reproduce when we go home, that we'll never watch another TV show or anything like that. That's not what it is. But it is in this place of simplicity to start to look at how we respond to our life and how we respond to the things that move through us or the life that's moving through us. Sometimes when the things that are happening might not be the things that we want to be happening and um, or we feel a little confused or ungrounded or what you know like to Sharda said I think in the first day letting the retreat unfold means being up for a kind of adventure it's maybe a mini adventure like it's we're actually physically pretty safe here it's not like jumping out of a plane but inwardly it can be a little bit And what happens when we feel kind of sequestered with not liking what's going on or feeling diminished by something that's happening in our mind, that we lose touch with our essential goodness or our essential connection with life. And that's what the five hindrances are about. That's what a talk about the five hindrances um, is meant to do, to describe some of the ways that we get sort of shut down or locked up or lost. There's a lot of skill and support from this Buddhist tradition, both to identify those forces and recognize them, which, you know, also brings a lot of intelligence and wisdom together and also skills on how to negotiate them. The Buddha said, luminous, O monks, is the mind, and it is obscured by the visiting defilements Luminous, O monks, is the mind, and it can be free from the visiting defilements. So for the one who doesn't understand, they don't see the mind as it is, and they're stuck with the visiting defilements. And for the one who knows and understands, they see the mind as it is, and there begins to be development of the mind. 
So what he's saying is that our basic nature is radiant and pure, and maybe we have a little sense of that. Like when Sharda was talking about the beginning of time, that there's that in us that, you know, maybe it doesn't have arms or legs or something like that, but there's a purity in us and that we kind of lose touch with that. We lose touch with the feeling that we really, inside ourselves, have everything that we need in order to live. So what happens is that we get, um, in the words of Chogyam Trumpa, we're haunted by certain things. We all carry places where we feel absolutely unlovable, either by ourselves or by other people or by both, or places where we tend to be afraid or we like to be in control and sort of push other people around to get them to do what we want them to do, or afraid of coming into conflict, so we just let other people dictate just to make sure that at least they're okay, even if I'm not, because I don't want to rock the boat. So what happens when we see that we all have these kind of like imperfections and moles and lumps and bumps? Can we really open our heart to ourselves as we are. That's the path to acknowledge that we're all kind of human within our relationship to life, that life as it moves through us has a pattern of light and dark, lost and found, up and down. And we seem to think that we really can only be okay at certain times and places and certain parts of the continuum. There's parts of us that really think that that's true that we really do need to lose weight before we can really love ourselves or whatever that is. My friend Susan Piver says, if we weren't human, we wouldn't be human. <laughs> like that? If we weren't human, we wouldn't be human. <laughs> so when we can start to be present for ourselves with more acceptance and more tolerance and more kindness and that, then these forces start to become workable. But if we lock ourselves into prisons of self-blame and self-hate or those kinds of things, then it makes it a lot more difficult. So the Buddha talked about the five hindrances. They're actually almost like an advanced practice. They're in the, of the four foundations of mindfulness. The first one being to pay attention and ground your awareness in the body and the breath. Then there's the feeling tone of pleasant and unpleasant. Then there's uh, observing the mind and all the things that happen in the mind. And then there's starting to be able to discern patterns, um, which is sort of like a second order thing. But the hindrances are in this discerning of patterns. Nonetheless, we like to talk about them early in a retreat because we also experience them a lot in the beginning of the retreat, as we were saying. So those five are, we listed them earlier, um, their desire or a sense of lack, like we, if, if only a certain thing would happen or stop happening, then I would be okay. Has anyone had that feeling? <laughs> if only I could get a certain thing in here and also in life. Anger, hate, ill will, or rejection. Uh, This is also like, I just can't stand this. I've got to get away from this. I can't stand that person. They make me cringe. I can't be with this. 
I can't deal with this, I can't be with you, I don't like myself, I suck, you suck, <laughs> this sucks, <laughs> a doll sucking, no I'm kidding, <laughs> active. Um, the third one is sloth and torpor, which um, on the physical level, there's been sleepiness, and we've talked quite a bit about this sleepy energy in practice uh, today. And, uh, but there's also a sense of uh, lack of energy or feeling dispirited or maybe even close to something like depression um, in sloth and torpor, just kind of feeling willing to just, uh, yeah, whatever, let things be. Not a deep, alive kind of response to life. Then there's restlessness and remorse, which restlessness can be a physical energy. And just when you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin, like there's 10 unpleasant sensations and you can't really pay attention to all of them, or you pay attention to one and then the other one kind of starts to scratch. Like when um, you have like more than one mosquito bite like that and you just can't really settle. But also there's a kind of internal agitation or anxiety or fretting or when uh, you kind of have a mind that feels very vulnerable to chewing over you know, the nuances of interactions and what if I said something wrong and I did do something wrong and that was a big mistake, wasn't it? And how compressed we can get into a story about that kind of thing, um, regret. So the instruction at first to do, uh, and when these forces are there, is to recognize them and to see that they're here. Bhikkhu Analayo, who wrote a book about meditation, said that um, this trick of bringing awareness to things, it's like a trick that, perf- that transforms an obstacle to meditation into an object of meditation. So an obstacle becomes an object. Just by being seen and recognized, Another instruction is also to notice when the hindrances are not there and how that feels, like times when you feel content or when your energy feels kind of nice and balanced or when there's great joy in the mind. I once did a one-month-long retreat uh, under the instruction of my Tibetan teacher, and he told me that I should go. I was was, uh, lucky enough to arrange to be able to be in a cave for a month, which had been a fantasy of mine since I was a teenager, to meditate in a cave, to the despair of my mother. Um, (laughs) In my mind as a teenager, I had only like this little white sort of diaper-y thing on, but that's, (laughs) I've outgrown that part. (laughs) But I did fulfill the other part. But he told me to go and just rejoice for a month, to just rejoice that I was there and that I had done all the practices that I've done in the past, like all my, to look and review at my life as a meditator and be happy about it. And I was like, I can't believe that this is what you're telling me to do. Aren't I supposed to like do something like work and really put my nose into the grindstone and work really hard? And he said, no, that's not necessary. Like I really want you to rejoice and contemplate your long, you know, your long dedication to practice. You know, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I had to start doing like something. So I started doing uh, prostrations and different practices and stuff. I did some rejoicing. I'm not saying I didn't do any, but 
Um, I wasn't able to really just do that. And then afterwards, like years later, I looked back and I thought, you know, I could have actually afforded to do more of it. At the time, I just felt like I didn't have the space in me to have that much joy or to even think that joy was okay as something to practice. So it is okay, actually. It is okay. So when there's pleasure in the mind or pleasure in the meditation or pleasure in the food or the eating or in lying down at your bed in your bed at night, that's also part of living here. So by talking about the hindrances, it doesn't mean like don't put beans in your ears. There's hindrances everywhere. Watch out. You know, I didn't used to like to give this talk for that reason. I thought it was a little bit of a downer. I was, so I was happy when the Buddha's instructions included noticing at times of ease as part of the practice with them. On the other hand, um, they can be patterns that are quite difficult in our life, uh, things that may not just dissolve in one sitting meditation or even in a year that sometimes I've had the feeling and I, when I meet with students, I hear people say, you know, I thought I was done with this 20 years ago and here it is again, the same thing, you know, or someone was speaking at lunch about how she was visiting her childhood home and she was in her childhood bedroom and she kind of had some of the feelings that she had had when she was much younger and it was difficult for her. Um, she said she could get out of it, but sometimes when she was in it again, she felt like she couldn't, she forgot that she could get out because when she was young, she didn't know that there was anything else than this. So part of returning to that state was feeling the panic of not knowing that there was more to life somehow than what had happened to her in her bedroom or in that life. So it's not always like an easy or linear, even a linear process. We need to be very, very gentle. And maybe sometimes for some of us not feel like we're going to jump all the way in to those raw feelings um, when they're coming up. Like, yes, to look at joy. And yes, sometimes to place your attention just on the breath. You know, the breath is quite neutral and smooth compared with some of the places our mind can go. Some of those dark nights of the heart and soul. So sometimes you, we might need, you know, certainly we're all here kind of holding the meditation experience together in, in the silence, knowing that we're all engaged with ourselves and with our minds and with a process that has, you know, a lot of ins and outs and subtleties and beauty and ups and downs. So there's a certain way that we're doing this together that just with our presence here in the hall and by our silence, um, we're holding this for one another. But sometimes it might help, you know, for us to go home and uh, have someone else help us with this, like a therapist or a friend or something. Like, just because we're in silence here doesn't mean that talking about it is never the right idea. That it's sometimes that only by really being loved through our process by somebody else that we can learn how to love ourselves. So that is an important thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each hindrance in brief, um, because this has been a very general um, introduction. I'm going to try to speak about being present physically in the body when you have a sense that the hindrance is there. Generally, uh, we cultivate being grounded in the body in this practice because the body is kind of innocent and the body is present and the body isn't sort of that mad mind. 
But we can also notice uh, when these states are present, some of the pain and contraction occurs physically. And if we begin to pay attention to how we're feeling in our body as these states arise, we start to notice that the body sensations are actually changing. And that peace in our mind that is so difficult, that thinks that it's always going to be like this, or I'm defined by this, this sort of piece of delusion that doesn't see the changing nature of life, is a little bit put to the sidelines. So we definitely recommend to drop in and feel. Uh, feel yourself physically as much as you can. Like through the day at all times, it's a wonderful uh, practice just to begin to be grounded and live from the body. So desire. It's compared to a dye in clear water because actually sometimes it feels good and it looks, maybe it looks prettier than the clear water and you kind of lose the sense of clarity or transparency of the water. You buy into the feeling that you have to have more, do more, be more in order to be all right. And our culture definitely encourages this. Just the you know, sort of fantasies of mega wealth and what's on television and that stuff. We're being fed this very consumerist idea, I feel as if you can buy happiness through shopping. The University of Illinois did a survey or some kind of study to assess the happiness of very, very wealthy people, and they found that the Forbes, Forbes 400 richest people in the country had about the same happiness as a Maasai tribes person. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys can feel that part of all of us that is often wanting something else or something more, or if only something would happen, then I could be happy, then I could be free, then I could be at ease, I'll be at ease sometime in the future. And what happens when we get sucked into that is like we buy into that feeling of being separate and feeling small. And we think that our happiness depends on the stuff outside us which is inherently kind of unstable since everything is impermanent. This isn't to say, again, that uh, we don't need certain things like food and shelter and dignity and those kinds of things. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is when that force of craving kind of takes over and almost becomes dissatisfaction in itself. So I can give you an example of recently I had, was just finishing a long uh, self-retreat period. And near the end, the transition, when I knew that in a few days this was going to come to the end, I was lying on the floor filled with clinging to the conditions of the retreat that were about to disappear, wanting to stay there forever and feeling I was going to lose all the ease and well-being that I was feeling two days from now. It's going to be all over and it's all going to be chaos and the airport and, uh, you know, obligations and my mail and all that stuff. I was really full of constriction and fear. And then all of a sudden the mindfulness kicked in and I thought, this is a thought. This is a thought about the future. It's almost like I'm importing some conditions that haven't happened yet and starting to frighten myself with how horrible it's going to be. Like, actually, maybe I'll deal with it. Maybe I'm looking forward to certain things. And then I relaxed down and it was like, you know what, I'm still here. I'm still here where I am in this body and this freedom and ease is available. And in that recognition and the release from the sort of 
thing that my mind was doing kind of to me, it's almost as if I received at that moment all the blessings of the retreat much more deeply, like I felt them actually penetrating, going very deep into my being or into my cells or into my body somehow. Um, by really recognizing and appreciating them just in that moment. So I had thought that well-being was absolutely dependent on the conditions of that retreat. And then because of the continuity of mindfulness practice, it's like I got absorbed or swept into the hindrance of desire and I allowed it to pull me out. And then at some point the awareness kind of came back and I felt the pull pulling me out of relationship with myself and out of relationship with where I was. So it's very insidious. After this retreat, I went with my uh, stepmother and father to dinner at this nice outdoor restaurant. And my stepmother said to my father, how come we don't come here often enough like that? It was like desire, lack, you know? Or my husband will often say when we're doing something fun, he says, we never do this. I'm like, we're doing it now. (laughs) Like, why does it, why do you suddenly, like, it's as if you're in the pleasantness of it and your mind suddenly goes, lack, lack. Rabbi Jacob said, if you're walking lost in wonder, empty of self and mindful of reality, and suddenly you interrupt this piece to exclaim, How beautiful is this tree? How magnificent this field? You forfeit life itself. This intrusion, this imposing of judgment, separates you from reality, snares you in a net of worlds, of words. Be still and know. Embrace it all in silence. So to sense what's here around us when that kind of desire and sense of lack arises, to begin to feel and be in intimacy with the moment. So I think actually the cure for desire in this way would be intimacy. Intimacy with either something outside the range of desire or to become more direct, uh, to come into relationship with the feeling of desire itself, like the discomfort that sort of projects you into action or reach beyond the place where you are. So the Radiant Sutras say, abandon all these attitudes of wanting to prolong pleasure and avoid suffering. Let the heart be itself and feel whatever is there. Freed from clinging and avoiding, the heart regains its poise and revels in creation. If you plunge deep into its center, you'll discover the heart is moved by a pulse that is everywhere. So by speaking of desire in this way, it doesn't mean it's to be rejected. It's to be experienced uh, from this balanced place, centered in the body. So that was really the big one. I spent a lot of time on it. The second one is resistance and aversion, and that's biggie, biggie, baddie number two. Um, (laughs) It, too, is kind of like a natural energy. It's the energy of contraction. Maybe it's there to protect us from things that threaten our survival. Germs and amoebas contract away from acidic things that are in the water and they move toward sugar, you know. Now I know about moving toward sugar. Um, (laughs) And contracting away from sour things, right? Yeah. I mean, I like kimchi, but this is like sour moods or people or grating unpleasant experiences. 
it's part, sort of connected with the natural energy of discriminating and eliminating and all of those things. So they're also part of the natural pulsation. Take your hand out of the fire. You wouldn't just leave it there, right? Notice when your knee pain becomes serious, this difficult energy is there, maybe to cause a movement. Or in a life, recognize when the compromise that you're making is too great. And even as much as you would really like to be able to give this or be there for someone or do something, uh, have enough time to do six things today, maybe you know you can only do two. And there's a pain that might start to teach us about that when we get a little out uh, beyond our tips of our skis. But we can see it here in the retreat uh, very easily, like where we might feel that we'd rather like be paying attention to the breath because it's actually pleasing when you can settle into the moment and be present and you really want to listen to the instructions, but actually you're quite distracted. And maybe only a quarter of you is able to be present. You hear one word out of four, or one breath out of 50. You know, you become aware that there was a sitting about two minutes before the end when someone says the sitting is about to end. And all of a sudden you feel okay. Like, wow, only two minutes? I think I can deal with that. Like, <laughs> you perk up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've been there. Or your mind is painfully stewing about a conversation that you had just before you came here, or something is actually happening in your life that is like super challenging, and you find that you might not even be in the retreat half the time, like your mind is off somewhere, and it's painful. So how do we become uh, able to touch the quality of energy of aversion? Now this is almost like my sales pitch, that it's worth it. That it's worth it to be able to feel unpleasant things instead of fantasizing or going somewhere else or having another cup of tea. Sometimes that's good. Backing off is good. But what happens so often when the aversion sort of takes over is that then it starts to become a solidifying hindrance or a thought of self-blame or self-judgment. Like I'm, you know, meditation becomes this thing where you're giving yourself points like, I had a really good sitting this time because I was really aware and then it started to get bad and then toward the end I was really bad and, um, you know, meditation is just another scorecard. Um, How many breaths or when did I get lost and stuff and we start to not be tender with ourselves anymore. Someone asked the Dalai Lama about, he said, he didn't feel worthwhile as a person. Like this is where this ends up going. And the Dalai Lama said, this feeling, I am of no value, is absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. He almost got a little angry when he was answering. That's, it's not true. That what happens when the mind gets enveloped in aversion is that it starts to get stuck, uh, starts to feel like a component of who we are or what we are. One of my friends wrote in an email, self-aversion and self-judgment is the most embedded and formidable hindrance It infiltrates our consciousness invisibly. It can be very difficult to recognize. Fundamental ill will toward ourselves leads to ill will towards others. So what happens is that we're afraid of it and we don't really like to feel it and we like separate it off and then it starts to really distort our entire life that we're not able to connect with ourselves being angry, like it's not okay to be angry, it's not okay to feel uncomfortable, to feel shy. Um, How we get stuck 
in aversion to aversion to aversion to aversion and how intolerable that can become. So the first thing to do is to recognize and acknowledge that something unpleasant is happening, that we feel aversion to it, rather than trying to put the whole thing out of your consciousness as fast as possible. See if you can come to the experience of difficulty with a sense of kindness and of a deeper heart for yourself. You know, all of our strategies really kind of come to nothing when we're trying to get rid of something that we don't like, like one of those painful conversations, like we would really like it to go away. It doesn't go away. It's kind of here in a certain way until we accept it sometimes. So can we catch that part of us that assesses something as problematic or unworthy of connecting with? Instead to sort of say, take a breath, and can I be with this? And how, how can I be with this? In what way can I find to be present 10% or 2%? Again, the technique of simple recognition transforms obstacles into meditation objects. Sometimes when there's a lot of aversion in the mind, it's really important to take a break and to find your resources, like to pay attention to your foot. Or You can actually almost always find a part of your body that's kind of happy. You know, like it's, your heart may be really aching and breaking and your mind might be really battering itself against the walls of your skull, but actually your foot is out of it. Your foot is just sort of sitting there tingling. It's okay. And it can be, it can be very surprising. Or your elbow or your shoulder, like some part of you is actually, all right, what is this? And then rest there and then kind of look back at the tribulation from resting there. But other times it can be really interesting to say, like, you know, in a very heartfelt way that for my own transformation, for the transformation of my life, I'm going to really uh, be with this. And... A couple of weeks ago, um, I'm now reaching the age where the older generation in my family and um, my husband's family, they're failing, you know, and people are sick. And some of them are dying and some of them are paralyzed and they're all dealing with it in their own ways. And there's one family member who's really quite severely disabled and we visit that person quite a bit. And... Everyone is visiting this person quite a bit. And they're really not very happy and they're not very grateful. Has anyone ever been around someone like that? (laughs) And this is kind of a close family person. And I found myself really angry that they're not happy. (laughs) You know, I was like, why the hell can you not be a little more appreciative? A little bit, like, we're, we're like working so hard to make you comfortable. And that's all we get, you know. Once in a while, some appreciation, but really a lot of complaining. And I was telling a friend, and I said, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a rage about it. <laughs> and I said, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, yeah. And so I decided before I went to visit this person the next time that I was going to feel the rage. So I went to my meditation cushion, and I sat there, and I said, I'm going to feel the rage. And it wasn't fun at all. It was really quite a difficult feeling. Quite a difficult, ugly, ugly feeling. 
Like to be enraged against someone who's so helpless and who has every reason to be unhappy. Um, it's not felt, just felt really unfair and unacceptable. But I went there with it for a little while, you know, enough, then we had to get dressed and go, and I did a little chanting to kind of give myself something more soothing to end it. And what came out of it was that when I was there with that person, I felt nothing but compassion, nothing but compassion for them. It was like it was, the obstacle was really gone. And I also had the feeling in myself of, you know, a good person can be enraged, you know, as much as I was afraid of having that feeling, it was really because I thought it would make me into not a good person. But there's something about the meditation practice and practicing with things in this way that they become a little bit unhooked, they become liberated, like I didn't have to project it onto that person. Um, it was kind of my feeling, my anger. And I wanted to move through it in this way so that I didn't unfairly put it on them. And yet I didn't want to suppress it. So it's between suppressing and acting out is this path of being able to feel it. And I felt it definitely in my body, burning, burning my heart. So in the long run, by being able to be with these really difficult feelings and places in ourselves, we become a lot more alive and we discover quite unexpected things about ourselves, quite unexpected space in ourselves if we're willing to stay and be the energies sort of transform, they really do. And of course when anger and resentment and irritation are not there, um, rest into the ease and happiness of not being angry right now. So sloth, torpor, boredom, lassitude and uncaring is the next hindrance. And I think as we've spoken quite a bit in the questions and answers, especially about the strategic level of how to um, manage a sitting where you feel um, slothful or sleepy and the unpleasantness and difficulty of that, I won't uh, talk about that as much. I'll talk a little bit about the feeling. Um, it's almost next to, next to a version of just not finding the energy to engage with your experience. And sometimes it's quite legitimate because we need the rest or we need a break or we want to be soothed or we want to tune out. Sometimes when people are having like a super hard time in a retreat, we do like say, why don't you do a little reading? Just to not be necessarily with yourself and your mind right now. Just do something else. Take your mind off it, change the channel. But there's another thing that we feel that uh, it kind of saps our energy, that when we're not really willing to be as open and alive, that would incur some kind of risk or some kind of touching into the unknown. What happens when we've made that bargain to not be willing to feel our anger or our desire? Like we end up quite restricted in our emotional life in other ways. Sometimes we go the route of dullness. Some of us go the route of anxiety. Like, because you're not able to feel this, you have to feel something else instead, so you get yourself all anxious about stuff. So I would just be curious uh, how it feels when we're feeling disconnected. What 
the aliveness and the sense of disconnection actually is. It's actually quite a lively and awake state in itself. And again, I'm saying that by going through and by actually connecting with a sense of feeling cut off, you'll start to feel the life in it and the pain in it, and you'll start to actually connect. The other thing about sloth and torpor and dullness is that 80% of the moments in our dash may not be distinguished moments. There's a lot of dishwashing and walking around and putting away your clothes and that. And when there's a sense of the feeling not being kind of either really grabby, excitingly upsetting, or kind of delicious, then we tend to kind of go away. And we miss a lot of the dimensions of our life this way. We might, miss, we might miss the beauty of the wooden floor or the color of the light or even the dimensionality of space um, by not connecting. So as you've seen in this practice, we're encouraged to connect quite a lot with things that normally are beneath our notice. So we're cultivating a moment-to-moment attention as sort of to combat the sense of shallowness in our life. So please appreciate that. In a Zen retreat, somebody wrote, I, can't, I didn't write down their name, five days of sitting with no toys can become quite boring once the pain in your neck and back subsides. We try to deal with boredom the same way as we do at other times, with some idea of escape. Thinking of the next meal, planning what you'll do after the retreat, you see yourself doing that. You become more aware of how you operate in a state of mental discomfort such as boredom. Retreat both intensifies our mental activities and feelings and minimizes the distractions that normally obscure them so that inevitably we see them for what they are, a result not as exotic as I expected at the time, but infinitely more valuable in the long run. So pay attention to your boredom and connect with it. Restlessness and preoccupation Just I'll touch briefly on that, to sense it also as a natural energy, as part of the spectrum of who we are. So when it's here, as much welcoming as you can do. When the mind gets into a sort of fretting mode, sometimes we just need to be patient and kind and say, you know, somehow I need to be running around in these particular circles trying to solve something, trying to find a place where I can lie down. So it's actually a place where we can observe the process of fretting and see the cycles that we go through. But also to feel uh, what happens in the body or what the actual emotional resonance of that thinking might be. So sometimes if we find ourselves thinking about something that happened, to recognize, I'm thinking about so-and-so. And what's the feeling? What's the feeling in my heart? What's the feeling in my stomach? Is my jaw getting hard? Are my hands feeling clenched? Um, Or am I actually feeling a tenderness? Do I actually feel care in this moment? Do I care about myself or about them? Dr. Liz Romer uh, writes about mindfulness and anxiety. An important thing about mindfulness is that it's a particular kind of awareness. It's an expanded one not a narrow awareness. Most people with anxiety, 
see if this resonates, are too narrowly focused on things that are threatening or anxiety-provoking as opposed to their whole experience. Since mindfulness involves awareness with compassion as opposed to the very narrow and critical awareness that accompanies anxiety. Anxiety prompts us to be hyper-aware of threat and uh, to avoid that threat. This avoidance interferes with learning new things as well as with fully experiencing our life. So the prescription when there's fretting or restlessness is to try to open and expand and relax and bring compassion into your attention. Sometimes go outside, uh, have some space there, be more calm in your activities, graciously touching the silverware and just have a sense of moving through the day a little bit more like a dancer than a puppet. In the sutras, this sense of restlessness is compared to when you're really stuck in it, it's that you're enslaved, you know, it's your mind is saying, do this, do that, go do this, go do that, and you can't uh, stop it. So when you're able to resolve that sense of restlessness, it's like uh, getting your freedom back. Um. And again, sometimes to just drop into the body, especially the belly, can be really helpful with this when the mind is fretting uh, deeply especially people who have some kind of trauma. Sometimes it's really helpful to when the anxiety or the fretting starts up and the mind becomes quite irrational and you can feel that movement that's just so painful and disconnected from ourself to sense something real, something more real than all of those thoughts, the hysteria in our head. So you can train yourself actually with a little bit of force to pay attention to something that's actually happening here and now, like the breath or the belly or your feet in the practice. And almost a little bit of um, toughness, a little bit of energy. Sharda was talking about that, like a sense of being able to just surrender uh, the preoccupation with this and uh, move your attention somewhere else. Maybe we'll never understand certain situations. Maybe they'll never be resolved, but can we be at peace also? Can we find peace in this moment? Actually, this um, mudra of the Buddha, he was freaking out in his meditation. Um, I don't know if you know the story, but he was attacked by multiple hindrances at once, and he actually touched the earth to have the sense of support of the earth uh, to help him through his dark night of meditation. Um, It's really part of his story, so I like that. Mudra, sensing the ground, supporting us. The final hindrance is the one of doubt, um, which is a very healthy one at times, a skepticism of looking at what you're being told or what you're being sold. Um, Trying to make an experience your own and check it out for yourself. Very healthy and quite encouraged in this practice. But it can be very hard to connect with your experience in the moment if you're questioning everything in a certain way of like, um, this is so weird, look at all these people, they're so weird, and how they're dressed, and who am I with, and kind of all that stuff, or I can never do this, or when will this start feeling good, or those kinds of things. The remedy for doubt is to connect with the actual experience of being present. But I want to say also that um, doubt was one of the Buddha's greatest strengths. He's one of the world's great doubters. 
He really doubted our identity, who we're told that we are, where we're told we're supposed to be in society, what we assume about male and female, high and low, our castes and privileges. He, when he created his sangha, he tried to make the arrangement so that people would no longer be in their same social world, like the rich and the poor uh, were equalized through the order of the way they were ordained. So to leave you with a sense of doubting our own thinking process and doubting our own perceptions as a very healthy thing, to think that we are not actually all these thoughts and all these feelings and all these emotions. It may be that we're the space that all of this is happening in, something that's very silent and subtle that we can sense in the quiet that thoughts are happening sort of to or within our awareness. We don't necessarily have to find a better ending to our story than that. Like, as living the dash, living with the presence of this awakened mind that's with us at all times, not necessarily being caught. So this is our day and coming to the end of our talk together. A few days ago or weeks ago, I was visiting a cemetery and I was quite moved um, by, there's a little sign saying no scooters, no alcoholic beverages, no tours for profit. You know, it was inculcating a sense of respect for the people that these had been. So you sense the quiet there and the love and the connection between all the living people and the dying people since the cemetery it would seem obvious that it's for the living people and the dead people aren't around anymore but feeling all the designations of father and sister and mother and child and all the ways that they had died and all the sense of connection and no doubt that all of those people were imperfect human beings and all of those people faced their different challenges and all of them lived kind of through their life in their own way. And it's like, it was all kind of sealed in a sense of that was it, that was them. A couple of them had messages for the living. And one of them I thought was very funny. It sounds very old fashioned, but she only died in 1985. On her tombstone, she wrote, I told you I was sick. That's a complex. Um, and that, but the one that I liked so much and I wanted to leave you with was a man who had a, he had a very simple, he had a board. It's actually a board with words painted on it. And it just said, God was good to me. So his gratitude for the life that he had was there. He was someone who was able to find that space. So may we all find that space of gratitude for our life, for all the things of our life and all the moments and the people and who we are. Thank you so much for your attention and your practice. A moment of quiet.
So if you're willing, let yourself feel your breathing. And if it works, imagine your breath moving over the area of your heart, your physical heart or your heart center in your body. Behind and within this movement of your breathing to sense just what's there for you in this moment in your heart, heart area. Could be a sensation, maybe a space not really knowing the felt sense. Could be feeling a little weepy or hard or burning. Nothing much. See if you can be a friend to yourself in this. Can you be okay with whatever it is that you feel? open to that experience, whatever it might be. Not ask for it to be anything different. And if you can't, if it really feels kind of stuck, And you let yourself know that this is how it is for me right now. Just now, this is what I'm experiencing. No more, no less. Just this. When Sharda talked about being ourself, in a sense, we're never apart from the truth of how we are. So let yourself be known to yourself. Thank you. At the nine o'clock sitting, we'll have some chanting. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.